was an article about a, a young woman in her 20s who had decided on her very social media pages that she was no longer going to post up um, photographs of herself in various locations, sometimes photographs that probably had been tweaked in some kind of way, as you can do nowadays, that she was going to show herself in all her glory first thing in the morning when she was having a breakfast and doing whatever she was doing, because she said it was more real and would help her to continue to be an influencer. No, inf not influenza, <laughs> but an influencer. And some of you will know that word, you've heard that word. They bill themselves, yes, exactly, yes, exactly. People bill themselves, especially on social media, as people who can have an influence amongst their peers, their own generation, or a wider influence as people follow them. And of course, it's all to do with how many followers you have and whether they watch on TikTok or Instagram, although Instagram's a bit old hat nowadays, I believe, or any of these other social platforms. Now, I know that you've all just put away your Instagram accounts and your phones just before you came to church this morning. Um, and, and for many of us, perhaps, it's all a bit of a mystery as to, as to this whole reality, but it is a reality. This was a, a major article in the Times about this lady. I would tell you more, but we are online and you've got to be careful about what you say. And so I want us, before we do anything else, I want us just to spend a few minutes, either ourselves or maybe talking to the person next to us. Who are the people that you have influence on in your life? And who were the people or still are the people who have influence on you. That means people whose life, the kind of things they said, the kind of people they are, you watched and you were encouraged to be like, or perhaps even the opposite. You saw and you thought, well, there's no way I want to be like that, and you reacted completely against it. But people whose lives had an impact on you, made you think about what kind of person you were going to be, what were the kind of things that you would want to do, who, who, who were the kind of people you might want to associate with, what were the kind of things you were going to believe in, and also, are there people today that you could influence? in so many different ways. It might be grandchildren, it might be family members, it might be people we work beside, it, it could a whole host of ways. So just for a few minutes, even though I don't think many of us will have claimed to be on social media that we're an influencer in that kind of way, who are, what are the influences? Who are the people who have influenced their lives, our lives, are who are the people that we can and do influence today by the kind of person we are and the things we do and the things we say. So just for a wee minute or two, have a wee think about that. And feel free to chat to the other person and say to them, you're the biggest influence in my life. If you're a husband or wife, you might like to hear that. Well, that's encouraging. Obviously, many of you have been influenced by many people. And you're also conscious of the influence you can be on many people today. Last Sunday afternoon, some of us went to a service held over in Christchurch, a congregation of the Free Church, a new congregation, a church plant of the Free Church, held over in Annisland. And as part of that service, a former member of this congregation, James and Carolyn's son Martin, was, along with Jennifer and their three children, commissioned 
to serve with Overseas Missionary Fellowship in Vietnam. And it was a, a good service, although rather warm, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, rather warm. I think it was going on much longer. I think a few of us would need to have gone out because it got very warm. But nonetheless, a good service in a whole host of different ways. And a very encouraging service to see so many younger families there as well, a number of young children. But as I sat and watched the service, I was very conscious of all the different influences that have brought Martin and Jennifer to that present time. The influences of their family, their parents, uh, and, and, and Alistair and Sally, and their, their, their influence, and Jennifer. Uh, and, and the home influence is important. And the example of parents, and the prayerful example of a Christian home, and yes, working through the challenges of family life and working through these things and coming to terms with these things and, and growing and maturing and understanding of these things, all those influences of those vital years are vital. The influences of a church family, of Sunday school, park kids or whatever it was called. It wasn't called that in the days of Martin and Jennifer, but the influence of Sunday school, Sunday school teachers of people who spend time with young people and their life and their example, the influence of friends um, for good or bad or indifference, sometimes seeing things and you think, no, I don't want to be like that. And I remember Martin many years ago sharing an experience of that. He was out, he was very much into music of the time, dance music, and he was at an event and he saw some things like that and he thought, no, that's not what I want to be like. And, and, and so that makes you think, well, no, I'm going to do or aim for things that are different. So the influence of a church family, the influence of a lifestyle, an alternative lifestyle presented to people through the generations. And that's why it actually is important that a church is generational from the very oldest to, to the very youngest. And how lovely it is that we have, you know, a 10-month-old baby and a 96-year-old sitting up just above them in the balcony. That's, that is an example of the family of God. The influence, of course, nowadays of social media, and certainly people like Martin and Jennifer who are growing and experiencing faith in so many ways, no longer is the local congregation. It's what's online. And again, that can sometimes be good, bad, or indifferent. But nonetheless, that has and does have a major influence, especially in younger people growing up within the life of faith. You can access, some of us discovered that during lockdown, you can access all sorts of things nowadays and all sorts of teachers and churches throughout the world. And it's there just at a flick of a switch or a fingertip. And ultimately, of course, the influence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit as a counselor. And what he meant there was somebody who would come alongside and would bring to us the wisdom and the knowledge and the understanding of God and enable that to be percolated through our thinking and our experience and our reading of Scripture so that our minds are renewed and transformed and conformed to the way of God, the influencer of the Holy Spirit. That and many other influences went to this couple and their children being able to stand last week and commit themselves to serve God in Vietnam. And do pray for them. There's many uncertainties. I did notice that, that in the prayer afterwards, there's quite a long list of things that they were being prayed for for this couple and for their family as they hope, God willing, to go out to Vietnam in the end of this month or the beginning of September. 
the story of Elijah and Elisha, and if you want to turn in your Bibles, we are getting to the Bible, if we want to turn in our Bibles to the first book of Kings, the story of Elijah and his influence over Elisha um, is, is central, actually, to the story of Elijah. Elijah, if it was actually about to, if, let's say, if you're standing as a prophet, as a man of God was determined how many chapters of dramatic events were ascribed to you, then Elijah actually would be eclipsed by Elisha and indeed by other men and women of the Old Testament and certainly in the New Testament of the disciples and the apostles. But nonetheless, it's not even so much, and I was sharing this with the folks on a Friday afternoon a few weeks ago, it was not even so much what he did, but the mark that Elijah made, the impact that his ministry under God made, that's why he is seen and was seen in the Jewish tradition and was seen on the mountain transfiguration by Jesus and Peter and James and John as the symbol and as the culmination of the prophetic tradition in the Old Testament. So let's pick up the story, 1 Kings chapter 19 and reading from verse 19. And we spent time last week, and thank you for the feedback a number of you gave to me, how you found that helpful. Uh, as God ministered to you through his word in a very challenging circumstances that you were going through. Thank you for that. And so let's pick up from that verse 19 of chapter 19 of the first book of Kings. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. He himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. And we'll pause there. We know the circumstances. We spent time last week thinking about that. It certainly wasn't a very uh, auspicious start. Um, God tells Elijah, who is going through an emotional and spiritual and perhaps even physical collapse of one way or the other, and he's told that he's to go, and we read just in verse 16 of the verses before, announce Jehu, son of Nisha, king over Israel, and announce Elisha, son of Shaphat from Abel Mahola, to succeed you as prophet. But just as we drew to an end of a reflection last week, we made the point that here was God saying, look, it's not all over. You may feel it is. He did feel that. was, no, take my life. I've had enough. And God says, well, you may feel you've had enough, but my purposes carry on. If God is a God of new beginnings, of a fresh start, of a God of life, a God of purpose, a God of point, of meaning, and of the days that lie ahead. All time, including the times of our lives, are contained within that big story of the one who is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And so it doesn't end with Elijah, and it doesn't end with me or you either. It will only end when Jesus comes in glory and rolls up the scroll of human history. And so there was a future. 
and Elisha was that future. And if you want later on in your own time to go on and read into 2 Kings, you'll see that Elisha had quite a future and was used powerfully by God, as I say, in some ways, even more dramatically than Elijah was. But the point is, if Elijah hadn't obeyed God, even though he didn't perhaps feel like it, if he hadn't obeyed God and gone on a search for Elisha, that next chapter in the purposes of God wouldn't have been written, or at least not written in the way that it was written. God is sovereign, and he has his ways of working around our failures and our disobedience and our mistakes. I'm not saying that, but it wouldn't have been written the way it was. And so it was important, even although Elijah was struggling, that he would obey. And that's, of course, a work to all of us when we go through the challenging times of life. We don't give up. Elijah didn't give up. When the widow of Zarephath, who had welcomed his son, died, he cried to God and he looked to God to do something in that situation. And God miraculously did. Doesn't always work like that. But God does answer prayer. He does work all things together for good with those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And he always has a plan in view of the future. And Elisha was that future. I actually say I think it's quite interesting when Elisha responds. And we see, of course, that there's already, God is already being at work. Elijah appears at the scene and Elisha runs after him and says, let me kiss, let me kiss my father and mother goodbye and then I will come with you. And Elijah, I think we're meant to understand, this is why the Bible's so wonderful because it's so honest. Elijah kind of, oh, let's hold on here a bit, <laughs> you know, this is getting a bit, you know. And, and, and perhaps even Elijah from his own experience, seeing this young man, thinking, what have I done to you? What am I inviting you to enter into? It's not a case of following me around the country on a wee road trip. It's entering into the purposes of God to be a man or woman of God for his generation and what that means. And that is a thought. I certainly can testify into my own life of times where You've encouraged someone to take up and to carry their cross. But you're mindful of what that could mean or will mean, especially in our current climate. What that means for our young people as they grow up in faith in the 2020s and the 2030s if the Lord doesn't return. What that will mean for parents. It is a thought. It's not that we're meant to be thoughtless or careless or indifferent or casual about what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. But it does mean that we set the example. And here, Elisha surely is an example, really echoing. And you can see the parallels here, particularly in this passage. You know, we're told that he's leading. He's one of 12 yoke of oxen. He himself was driving the 12th pair. And there are some people who would see that as a picture to the future of the 12 disciples and of Peter being the leader of those 12 disciples, the one who was going to particularly to lead them. And we all know Peter was not perfect, but nonetheless, he was the one who was going to lead them. We see the picture of the disciples leaving their nets and going to follow Jesus. We hear the words of Jesus who calls people to leave behind and forsake all in order to take up their cross and come. We see that in the story here. All of the Bible 
from beginning to end, from the call of Abraham to the trumpet call of God when Jesus returns, points to the glory of God and our calling to respond to that. And to walk in the way of Jesus. And suppose I see nothing else and it suddenly becomes not 20 past 11 but 10 to 12 then I say to you this morning with, with enthusiasm, but also with solemnity, there is no greater influence that you can ever bear on anyone else's life, whether it's your own kith or kin, or somebody you work beside, another member of the wider family, or even with someone within the life of the church, that you are used by God and that you model before God what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Because that's the only influence that will last beyond the grave. And that's an example that weak and fragile Elijah brings to us today. And let's move on. And turn, if you'd like, to chapter 21 of the first book of Kings. As you do so, we don't have time, unfortunately. I encourage you to read the whole story when you get home. But basically, Ahab, the king, a godless man who did that which was evil, more evil than the sight of God than anyone else, went in the huff because beside where the palace was in Samaria, there was a vineyard, a vegetable garden owned by Naboth. It's not that Ahab didn't have enough but he wanted more, the spirit of being covetous and never being satisfied. And he goes in a sulk, we're told, in verse 4 of chapter 24, and his wife Jezebel comes in, who really was the power behind the throne. And she says, verse 5, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? And he answers, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard. If you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with them. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people, but seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. Once again, a little picture, the Lord in the middle and the cross and the two scoundrels on both sides. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth said, it is a Jezreel directed in the letter she had written them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up and take your possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He's no longer alive, but dead. And when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. What a story of corruption and the abuse of power over others and judicial murder 
that rings bells in our contemporary world today. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, so you found me, my enemy. You can see they're still not best friends. And Elijah answers, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says, I am going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Basha, son of Ahijah, because you have aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. And when Ahab heard these words, he ignored them and went on his own sweet, merry way. No, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster on his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. The other week ago, John and Kath McLeod had their son Andrew and his family up visiting. We saw them at church. It was encouraging. And I went to visit and had a most encouraging evening. Thank you for your hospital. Your gingerbread's lovely. But I think I could speak to you. One of the most moving parts was at the very end. When their grandson, Alistair, very, as he entered into conversation, young man of 16, a very fine young Christian, entered into conversation with us and then just very naturally read a passage of scripture about the Lord and his coming. I certainly think we all felt just very how blessed we were, but how very real the Lord was to that young man's life. And we were in conversation about some of the real issues that the church faces and the whole moral and ethical issue today. And there are many very real issues and quite specific issues. And again, I'm very conscious we're online nowadays that you don't need me to tell you what are the specific issues to do with ethics and everything else that we face. And how it's understandable. And it's not that there's never a place for the church to speak openly and to condemn things and to, you know, to criticize things. It's not that there isn't a place for that. But in conversation, we were reflecting, I was trying to encourage us to reflect on the fact that ultimately the real issue is that human beings, the real issue is not this or that. They're simply symptoms, important symptoms, but symptoms of man and woman's rebellion against God and his law. You see, this is the issue which you might not appreciate. It wasn't just that Ahab gave in to jealousy 
and took something that didn't belong to his own. It wasn't just, however serious it was, that Jezebel set herself up effectively as the king and used his seal to organize lies and deception and, as I say, a judicial murder. All of that was wrong. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. All of that was wrong and rightly deserves to be judged. But ultimately... It was because they were doing what God had expressly forbidden, the seizure of land that belonged to people and there was part of the inheritance of the land that was meant to be passed on down through the generations. They were rebelling against God's laws. And supremely that is, even beyond all of that, it's because they did not worship the Lord their God with their heart and soul and strength and might and had no other God apart from him. They had the God of their own greed and envy and power. And in so doing, all these other things which took place. But the real issue that we face in our contemporary society as we have faced down through the generations is that rebellion, I will be like God, is that not what the serpent said in the garden? Eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge, or eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and you will be like gods. We think we're the king of the castle. I'll do it my way. And we see, especially as the Christian influence in our society declines, that that is continually being expressed. A good example, if you wanted to see what it's like, and appreciate we're not all in that place, Quite often when I'm working in the garden, if I'm working in the garden on a Saturday afternoon, you know what I do? I listen to women's hour. We're very inclusive now. Very inclusive. Notice I'm looking at the camera when I say that. And we're very inclusive. Because on a Saturday, they bring together the events of the week. Just listen, one Saturday, to women's hour on a Saturday afternoon. There's many good things, many good things that we're talking about. The football, the women's football, and all the rest, that's great. But if you listen to that, what do you hear? Well, I suggest you hear what the Bible says ultimately is sin against the Holy Spirit. That which is wrong is edified as right. And that which is right is thought of as being wrong. So listen. That is the world in which we live. And the need is for men and women to recognize their sinful state before God. Ahab, we're told, had sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Helped along, I have to say, by Jezebel, his wife. He had to recognize his sinful state. Not just the specific things which he had done wrong, which are wrong, but his sinful state before God. He had grieved the Almighty. He had set himself up against him and his ways. And because of that, he deserved judgment hell and the only answer to that plight is the same answer that Jesus made clear at the beginning of his public ministry he said repent for the kingdom of God is at hand remember these words from 2nd Peter 
where Peter very graphically displays what will happen at the end of time. And he says this in 2 Peter 3 and verse 8. Don't forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord is a day like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Yes, there are many things that are wrong. But there's one thing which sovereignly is right above everything else. That when a sinner like me and like you cries out to God for mercy, he hears save even the worst when they look to him and throw themselves before him. And if in our conversation and in our lives and what we say and the concerns we express and then everything else and there are plenty of things we can point the finger at and shake our head at and everything else, if we do not communicate that message, that a sinner just like me can be saved, then we fail to communicate the message. The second book of Kings in chapter 2. The Bible's great, isn't it? Not warm our hearts when we start reading the Bible. It's a living word for our day and generation. Let's walk, continue to have our hearts warm as we read this part of God's word. Second Kings chapter 2. And reading from verse 1. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, As surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, so be quiet. Then I just said to him, stay here, Elisha, the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho and the company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, as surely the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. And Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me. What can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. And so we're walking along and talking together. Suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. And Elisha saw this and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And 
Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. And Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him, went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. And when he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left. And he crossed over. Sometimes when I'm pastor visiting, I was out with a few folks from the congregation taking for a wee run and a coffee yesterday and Friday morning. We get into all sorts of conversations. And I noticed actually that the lady who was serving us over in Kamanak in, in the cafe there was quite taken with the conversation you and Elizabeth, Elizabeth and I had, not my Elizabeth, but Mrs. Thompson sitting in the balcony. As we went up the stairs and passed through the main part and she was there and she heard us talking about, dare I say, your funeral. And you were saying very clearly that you didn't want, so just take note of this, in case I'm not here, you're 110, um, um, that she doesn't want a morbid event, but it's to be bright colors, and we have to have hymns of praise and celebration, because as you said, Elizabeth, faith, surely if we have faith, that that makes all the difference. when you've had a long life, challenging life, but long life, surely it does. One of the greatest influences we can have in our life is how we view eternity, how we view heaven, and how we see how we live our lives here as vital, as important, as the place where we come to faith and meet with Jesus, as the place where, in a sense, we get our wings and learn what it is to serve him, to follow him, but ultimately as a preamble to the glory that waits us. And yes, there is debate and there is mystery about all of that, but let me tell you, however beautiful things are here when we look out over you know, the wonderful horizons that we can see in our world and we know the joy and the blessings of life, and yes, however sorrowful and challenging things are here, here, just wait to glory. And this story, time is gone, I'm afraid, but this story is actually one, I think, one of the most moving in the Bible. Elisha knows in his heart that Elijah's journey is ending. So do, and notice also, just as an aside, that, of course, Elijah's complaint in the past that he was the only one who was faithful to the Lord and served the Lord wasn't the case. And there were actually schools of prophets in some of the, in the various cities and communities of Israel, including, dare I say, Jericho. God destroyed a city, but rebuilt a place where the prophets of the Lord served. See, this is the God who does new beginnings and can say it, he makes all things new. And so they go on their journey. It's one of these days, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. I don't think this all happened in 24 hours. They go on a journey through the main part of what is the territory of Israel, especially of the land of the southern kingdom. And as they go, Elisha's told by these prophets, you know what's going to happen. Elijah's going to die. And when Elisha says, be quiet, again, there's a suggestion there for a number of reasons. First of all, it's, I mean, we can talk you've had a long life. You don't normally go about talking about people's deaths unless they initiate the conversation. And also for Elisha, you can see that in the way he responds, there was a part of him which rightly didn't want to think about it. 
Elijah was his hero. Elijah had become his main influencer. You see that with the disciples when Jesus began to speak of what was going to happen. There was a natural reaction from the disciples of not wanting to hear about that, not wanting to think about that, not wanting to consider about that. It's not that as believers we somehow have a death wish or that we're morbid or all we can talk about is, you know, funeral. But there is that sense in which the journey they're on, the physical, emotional, geographical journey they're on, is a backcloth, the background to that ultimate journey, not just for Elijah, but for Elisha and for all the prophets of the Lord when the Spirit of God comes and takes us. The same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same Spirit which on that day of resurrection will bring us all who are in Christ and raise us all to that glory. There may well not be a chariot and a whirlwind whirling around any of us individually. That was a special event. Like Enoch, way back in the book of Genesis, he was and he was no more because he was taken but it is a reminder that when God's trumpet sounds he calls and we go because we live our lives in the light of that eternal glory and one of the greatest influence we can bear especially dare I say, us older people, and I include myself now, <laughs> 20 odd years ago I didn't, but I now include myself as falling into the category of us older, is amongst, the, with those who are younger, not they're going on about, it's like we've had our conversation, it was actually joyful, and there was a laugh, that's why the woman who was serving the bill kind of thought, what's this kind of conversation about, because, you know, there's the hope of heaven, there's a promise of Jesus, there's the glory that awaits, and there's the reality that we live our lives here with that glory surrounding us. Comforting us. And sustaining us in the here and now. And reminding us that however precious the things may be that we own or possess. They are nothing. Compared to the jewels. Remember the old gospel redemption hymn, Wear many jewels in your crown. Well, they're nothing. Nothing. Compared to the jewels that await. And actually, if we hang on to too many of the jewels in this life, we're going to get a shock when we arrive to glory. And the Bible tells us that we might be saved, but as by fire. Because all that we thought was so important will turn to dust. And we have nothing of eternal value to bring to the Lord and our Father in heaven. I do pray on that day when I stand before the judgment seat, as we all will, that there will be some who will say, not to give me glory, not to bum me up, but some will say, you know, the person who influenced my life is not the person himself. What they said, how they shared, and the way in which they revealed Jesus to me. That, my friends, 
is the greatest influence you can ever have. And how you face your death as we get older, and how you see your life in the light of that, that speaks most powerfully into materialistic and, yes, godless generation who think all there is is what I have and what I make of it in the here and now. You want to be an influencer in life? Don't worry about social media. Probably most of us wouldn't even know how to get onto it. And even those of us who are onto it, be careful what you put up. Interesting, I sometimes hear what some put up on their social media site. And I'm not always convinced it speaks of Jesus. What's the most important thing is the relationships you have 